Today's episode is brought to you by Transporter. No, not that Transporter. The Transporter is a storage device that lets you create your own private cloud for syncing, accessing, protecting, and sharing your data. Now, while you can do that with something like Dropbox, if you have anything like a serious amount of data you want to store or share, you can't do it as safely nor as economically. With Transporter, you don't have to worry about who has access to your digital life because you make that decision. Your stuff's not stored in an unseen server farm who knows where. It's stored on a physical device that you control. You share with whom you want to share whether they have a Transporter or not. As for cost, 100 gigabytes of storage on Dropbox will run you 99 bucks a year. If you already have a drive you want to use, you can pay 99 bucks one time for the Transporter Sync and get the same functionality without the recurring cost or security concerns. 500 gigabytes on Dropbox will cost you close to $500 a year. You can do that, or you can spend $249 one time for a one terabyte transporter. That's more storage, more security, and a one-time cost that's less than half of what you pay on Dropbox for less. The benefits of a transporter are big. Learn more about them for yourself at filetransporterstore.com. Check out the models and offers they have available. Then, when you decide to buy, buy at a discount. Offer code MLOG, M-L-O-G, will get you 10% off on your order. All caps, no spaces, M-L-O-G. M-L-O-G will get you 10% off when you buy your transporter at filetransporterstore.com. They come with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you've really got nothing to lose. Beam yourself to filetransporterstore.com to find out more. Transporter, storage and sharing made simple and secure. Brought to you by Connected Data, and we do thank them for sponsoring this week's Mission Log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 77, The Savage Curtain. Welcome to another spellbinding edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Spells not included. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we're pitted in a fight of good versus evil to determine the morals, meanings, and messages of every single episode of Star Trek from the very beginning to the very end. Funny you should mention good and evil, John, because this week good and evil go at it for all the marbles when we find out what's behind the Savage Curtain. Ken, I'm pretty sure that I watched this episode and I did not see marbles anywhere in it. I actually didn't see a curtain, you know, and I was, <laughs> I was going to make the joke, you know, yeah. it, it was good to see that the Savage Curtain matched the <clears throat> theme of the show today. But before we even get to the theme of the show or what the show's about or any of that stuff, well, we already said good and evil, but before we get to the intricacies of what the show is about, uh, we got to get to the intricacies of trivia. Yes, um, a lot of cool stuff to talk about. So I'm going to give you kind of the the tip of the iceberg, and I encourage all of you to dig deeper to find more. But uh, a few things that I wanted to point out here. Uh, there is a cut scene, uh, which would have been an additional scene of Kirk, Spock, and Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, in the briefing room having a chat. And uh, it maybe reveals a little bit more about this Lincoln avatar's confusion 
about where he is and what he knows and does not know about where he is. So uh, you can actually find that dialogue online. Uh, Herschel Doherty, who directed Operation Annihilate, also directed this episode. Uh, The teleplay is by Arthur Heinemann. You may remember that I mentioned him in previous episodes. He was primarily an animator who turned to writing. Uh, He wrote The Way to Eden, and he wrote the teleplay for Wink of an Eye. Uh, The story is by Gene Roddenberry. So even though Gene has been somewhat absent in season three, this story was originally created by him and then fleshed out into a teleplay by Arthur Heinemann. Now, I found this really fascinating. Mark Leonard, who we have seen before, of course, as Spock's father, Sarek, and of course, as the Romulan commander in Balance of Terror, was originally tapped to play Abraham Lincoln, and he wanted to do it. But he had a scheduling conflict that prevented him from taking the role. Um, I guess it would have been too <laughs> confusing to have him play Surak. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. But yeah. it also would have been just nutty to have him, you know, yeah. play Lincoln, especially with two other Vulcans on screen. I know, you know I know, people who haven't seen the show, boy, who's this other Vulcan? Well, we'll I get know. to him. I know. But that's a, that's a, that's a crazy idea. It's kind of, you know, you have to assume then that during the production of a show at that time, they were just thinking, well, these shows don't really play in reruns and we're coming up to the end. So who's going to know? It's been so long since we've had Mark Leonard and we really like him. Let's bring him back to do something. Five years from now, nobody's going to remember Star Trek. They Nobody will remember. Yeah. None. Um we need to mention that uh, it is the same guy in the Horta costume as in the Excalbian rock monster costume. That is Janos or Janos Proska. Um, yes, so he uh, made a bit of a brief career playing rocks. <laughs> He's like the Andy Circus of his time. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Good call. Thanks. Um, did you notice the, uh, the, how could you not notice the white weapons belt? in this episode a lot of velcro going on and uh it was one of the rare moments of seeing these kind of uh off colored uh additions to the costumes i thought that was a little bit strange um how about colonel green's costume that red jumpsuit did you like that because you're going to see a lot more of it on mork later in uh, happy days and mork and mindy what are you talking about I'm say Colonel Green yeah. in this episode, he's yeah. wearing that red jumpsuit, right? Yes. That costume was then worn by Robin Williams when he played Mork. Wait, the same red jumpsuit? The same red jumpsuit. Get out. I would not lie to you, Ken. Really? Yes. <laughs> I promise you. What? How bereft was Hollywood in the 1970s that they had to reuse a jumpsuit? <laughs> I know, right? Because, I mean, they, they put stuff on the jumpsuit. He didn't, I mean, yeah. uh, Colonel Green didn't have the big uh, silver triangle that Mork yeah. had. No, they, they redressed it a little bit. Oh, you've you got to same, be kidding me. Yeah, they have the same collar, all right? And all it's right. the same fabric, obviously. But you take off Colonel Green's medallions and then you put on the, the thing that Mork had, the big triangle thing. That is that is just dumb. I mean, that's Crazy, that's huh? neat. I really now I want that jumpsuit even more than I did before. Yeah, that jumpsuit though, not just another one because apparently that one has <laughs> mystical powers. Exactly, exactly. Weird. Um, we have to mention the guest stars because we have a lot of guest stars, and I'm just going to give you the the bare bones of uh, of what they did. Um, 
Carol Daniels, Nathan Young, uh, Errol Blanton, lots of credits for everybody, primarily in TV. Uh, Bob Heron, who played Kales, uh, was actually a stuntman, and he appeared in The Cage. Uh, mm-hmm. He did stunts for that episode way back when. So as we barrel toward the end of season three, barrel toward the end of TOS, we're bringing back people, which is kind of nice. <laughs> You're like, hey, remember that guy we worked with four years ago? Let's bring him back. Um Philip Pine, speaking of Colonel Green, uh, you know, another actor with just a huge number of credits. And he actually did appear in Happy Days, but not in an episode with Mork. Uh, So he did not get reunited with his old costume, I'm sorry to say. Uh, Lee Beger played Lincoln. Um, He had a massive career in TV, but he is best known on Dynasty, where uh, he was a regular. I think he did about 70 episodes of that show. And uh, Surak, we mentioned, uh, Barry Atwater, just fantastic. He died too young at the age of 60 in 1978. Um, Ton of TV credits like Mission Impossible, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Night Gallery, Man from Uncle, Perry Mason. I mean, you name it, that guy was in it. Wait, that's it? Yeah, that's uh, that, that's all that uh, Barry Atwater did. He he did. Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned it all. Now I'm pretty sure you're missing one. Oh wait, okay, Ken. <laughs> uh, he was actually in the Night Stalker. Wait, which what? Was, which yeah, Night Stalker? Which Night Stalker was he in? Okay, he was in the Night Stalker, which was the TV movie that then became the series. Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and interestingly enough, he played the vampire Janos or Janos, same name as the guy in the Horta costume. That is, um, wow, that's nutty. Yeah, I just okay. blew your mind. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a little confused now. So, was Darren McGavin in the movie The Night <laughs> yes. Stalker? Yes, he was. Okay, so they they did do that together. They did. See, because here's another little known fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, there's a deleted scene from mm-hmm. uh, from a Christmas story where we actually met Mr. Bumpus and guess who played him? Who? Barry Atwater. Now it is quite possible that I am making that up. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, In fact, and, I would and, say it's more than possible. It's likely. And that's why I do trivia. That's why you do trivia because I'll I'll just tell you whatever. I'll just I'll just make stuff up. Yeah, you know the the original Enterprise actually made out of a shoebox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. there's a little trivia for you. Share that with your friends. Is it just me, or does Lincoln's first appearance on screen look like an advertisement for a Civil War chess set from the Franklin Mint? Prologue. The Enterprise is checking out a planet by orders of the Federation. Rumor has it there's life here, and some of Spock's instruments suggest that too. But the atmosphere is poisonous, and the surface is molten lava. Life would be impossible here, and Kirk decides to push on. As it's preparing to leave orbit, however, something approaches the Enterprise. A man in a stovepipe hat, in a chair, sitting in front of and communicating with the Enterprise. His name, he says is Abraham Lincoln. Act 1. Well, it looks like Abraham Lincoln. Spock says whatever it is, he's scanned enough of the ship to present the Abe Lincoln illusion, a suggestion that leaves Lincoln a bit perturbed. He asks to come aboard the Enterprise to prove himself. They'll be passing over his part of the planet soon, a part that suddenly does seem able to support life. Kirk orders full ceremonial bells and whistles for the arrival of the President. He makes it clear that he doesn't believe that whatever it is is the real Abraham Lincoln... 
but it believes it is, and Kirk's going to roll with it. One more sign that it's not Lincoln. Sensors show a rock-like creature with heavy foreclaws where Lincoln is supposed to be before it turns into something that shows up as human. Once transported, Lincoln is confused by the technology that's playing music without musicians, with the mode of conveyance that got him here. He's just a simple 19th century president. He's taking it all in stride, though. McCoy's readings indicate that he is human, leading Scotty to wonder whether the rock-like thing that he saw was actually a second being. Act 2. Kirk's giving Mr. Lincoln a tour. While he knows this can't really be Abraham Lincoln, he confides to the captain's log that the guy is exactly what Kirk would expect Abraham Lincoln to be. On the bridge, Mr. Lincoln encounters Lieutenant Uhura. He says something that he's suddenly worried might be offensive, but she says people aren't uptight about such things the way they once were, and all is well. Kirk says everybody's learned to get along with everybody now, provided, of course, they're not dirty hippies. Kirk says the Vulcans got that centuries before the humans did, a fact to which Spock attests, making a mild pitch for Idic, pendant not included. Yes, says Lincoln, the philosophy of gnome, meaning all. Everyone is surprised that Lincoln knows that, including Mr. Lincoln, who has no idea how he came by such knowledge. Just like he has no idea how he knows that when Spock beams down to the planet later, he'll meet one of the greatest Vulcans in the history of Vulcan. Oh, what's his name? Starts with a letter. Anyway, he'll be there. Now back to the tour. Uhura will show Mr. Lincoln around as Kirk and Spock head off to meet with McCoy and Scotty. McCoy and Scotty, who are not happy. Why is Kirk treating this alien like Lincoln? And wait a minute, seriously, you and Spock are beaming down to a planet that just a couple of hours ago was totally poisonous and totally covered with lava? That may, in fact, still be totally poisonous and still be totally covered with lava? Kirk says he knows that Lincoln is actually an alien. He wonders, though, why the alien took that form. Spock says it's obvious. Lincoln is a very personal hero of Kirk's, so what better way to rope him in? So is that going to work? Oh, yes. Beaming down to the poisonous lava-ridden planet over the objection of Scotty and McCoy, and since Spock was invited, he can come, too. Scotty beams Kirk, Spock, and Lincoln away, though when they transport, their phasers and tricorders stay behind. On the surface, they can breathe, and they're not drowning in lava. So that's good. They're not able to make contact with the Enterprise, though. So that's not good. Suddenly, Kirk's had enough of all this Lincoln business. Time to say who and what you are, Mr. Not-Lincoln. Lincoln says he has no idea what's going on. As far as he knows, he is Abraham Lincoln, just as the tall Vulcan coming around from behind that rock knows that he is Surak, prototypical Vulcan of history. The first one who was all like, hey, you know what? Logic. The greatest Vulcan ever, according to Spock. Aboard the Enterprise, things are getting screwy. Power's going in and out, warps out, communications are hinky. They can't even turn the ship off and turn it back on. So I guess the windows aren't working either. Back on the planet, Surak is giving Spock a good talking to about the Vulcan way. I say live long and prosper. You don't say live long and prosper back. Also, you showed a bit of emotion when you saw me, Spock. I'm sorry, is this Surak or Sarek? Surak says hello to Kirk, too, again giving the minor idic pitch, though Kirk's done with all this historical figure game of charades stuff. Suddenly, one of the rocks starts moving and talking. It's actually a rock-like creature with heavy foreclaws. 
He's from the planet Excalbia, the population of which is tuned in and watching the drama about to unfold here, as is the crew of the Enterprise. Kirk, Spock, Lincoln, and Surak, time for you to defend your way of life, good, versus Genghis Khan, 21st century genocidal earth warrior Colonel Green, Tiburon's own mad scientist Zora, and the Klingon who needs no introduction but will give him one anyway, the one who made Klingon society a little less civil and a little more bloody, Kalis the Unforgettable. The Excalibur says these two teams, one representing good, the other representing evil, will fight to the death to prove which is stronger, good or evil. He freely admits that they don't get the whole good and evil thing. Making beings fight tends to be how they learn. Or how they think they learn, anyway. Act 3. Scotty and McCoy talk over possible ways to help the landing party. Well, McCoy does. Scotty says they don't have enough power to do anything except watch the proceedings. On the planet, the Excalibur wants to know what the holdup is. Get to fighting, you two! Kirk says he and Spock won't fight, though the Excalibur thinks they will change their minds. Colonel Green, apparent captain of Team Evil, comes over to talk things over. This is crazy, huh, Captain Kirk? Let's figure out a way out of this together. This was, of course, a trick. Team Evil attacks Team Good. They're able to repel them, though. Spock suggests they prepare for a new attack, though Kirk says Colonel Green was right. The rock-like thing is their enemy, not Team Evil. Surak agrees, though the Excalibur says it's disappointed. We offer you a chance to become our teachers by demonstrating whether good or evil is more powerful. Kirk tries to attack the Excalibur, which seems to give the Excalibur an idea. Why don't you call your ship, Kirk? He does and finds that the Enterprise is in a world of hurt. Probably going to blow up in about four hours. Yeah, that's me, says the Excalibur. Win and they'll live, refuse to fight or lose the fight, and the Enterprise will be destroyed. So get to fighting. Kirk and Lincoln start devising a plan. Find a defensible position. Make or gather weapons. Surak thinks they should try reasoning with Green instead. So, he goes off to do that. Kirk suggests that the rest of the men continue their defensive moves in case he fails. Which he does. Back at their camp, Kirk, Spock, and Lincoln hear a screaming Surak. He calls for Spock's help as we go to commercial. Act 4. Surak keeps calling to Spock as Team Evil goads him. You gonna let your friend die, Spock? Kirk asks how Spock can let that happen to Surak, though Spock says, that's not Surak. Surak would not cry out so. But it's someone, argues Kirk, ready to go save whomever it is. Spock says, that's what they want you to do? President Lincoln has a plan. Kirk and Spock should create a distraction while Lincoln sneaks around and frees Surak. And when it comes time to kill, says Lincoln, do it. Be as merciless as Team Evil. There is no honorable way to kill, no gentle way to destroy. There is nothing good in war except its ending. Plus, you got your ship and crew to consider. Mostly things go according to Lincoln's plan. Except Surak is already dead and Lincoln gets killed. Time for another melee round, with Kirk and Spock rolling 18 or better on every throw. Team Evil is incapacitated, and the Excalibur deems the contest concluded. It's bummed, though. Kirk and the others have failed to demonstrate to it the differences between their opposing philosophies. Except that evil retreats when confronted by force. You guys do the same things and achieve the same ends. Kirk argues that they did that based on the parameters set up by the Excalibur, though the Excalibur argues they had free will inside those parameters. And with that, it turns back into an inanimate rock. 
Everything is back to rights on the Enterprise. Kirk and Spock beam back aboard and talk over what happened. Kirk says, having seen the Lincoln that was made up from his imagination die, he kind of feels like he knows what Earth went through in its darkest hours before attaining lasting peace. But there's still so much of the work of Lincoln and Surak to be done. Maybe they'll get to that on their next assignment. The end. Hey, Ken, there was a, a bit early on when Lincoln is standing on the bridge and uh, he, he says something like, you'll pass over my logo. I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the avatar of Lincoln uh, will we'll pass over this location in 12 minutes. You do still use minutes, don't you? And Kirk <laughs> says, oh, we can convert to it. And I thought, when, when did suddenly minutes become a different thing? Yes, I know. It's something they bring back later on, though. I mean, you know. If, if like you, immediately. Well, th- then, too. It's something they've talked about before. Maybe, you know, I've used this a lot lately. Maybe they were trying something sort of like we tried the metric system in the 70s. Oh, okay. They got yeah. a memo from from, uh, from Starfleet saying, yeah, we're not going to do minutes anymore. We're going to do uplos or something. I don't know. Right. I'm making well, I, something up, as they were, apparently. And so, yeah, this week, okay, we'll go back to minutes for you. Right. See, I, I kept the, in my mind, I extrapolated the scene of, like, uh, Lincoln trying to buy something on the ship. Like, here, I've got I've got these coins with my face on it. Uh, I'll have to convert these to quatlus, I guess. Yeah, you something know? like that. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Um, it is weird, actually, a lot of the stuff that changes between, well, certainly from Lincoln's time, even just to our time, but then from our time to mm. Star Trek time, um, mm-hmm. the philosophy of Gnome has changed quite a bit by the 23rd century. Unless this is just a, you know, a Vulcan version of Gnome. I mean, I know here on 21st century Earth, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm speaking to all the future men out there and women, right. you know, future right. people, future, you know, and whatever else we come across. Sure. Uh, the philosophy of Gnome is closely tied to photographing and consuming well-prepared or particularly tasty sustenance on 21st <laughs> century Earth. It's actually an offshoot of the philosophy mm. Yum, mm. which uh, sadly was co-opted by the multinational Yum brands under the despotic oh. rule of one Colonel Harlan Sanders, oh. a name these days not closely tied to Gnome nor Yum, <laughs> actually, though, uh, in the right combination after a rough bout of shore leave. Uh, Eleven herbs and spices can still do the trick. Just have a wet nap handy and keep the bag because you may need it. Man, that, that was that was minutes. its own show. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Two shows nightly. Yeah. And if you want to know more about Yum brand, sticker symbol Y-U-M, please uh-huh. consult the uh, consult Barron's or the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. Um, you know, just not that long ago, we talked about space hippies. Yeah. And uh, Kirk shows way more respect to fake Lincoln than yeah. he ever did to a bunch of space hippies. And they were real. Crazy, um, right? Well, no, and, Lincoln and th- is real. He just might not really be Lincoln. Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah. 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 No, Kirk's got it bad for um, authority. Yeah. I mean, go back to let that be your last battlefield. Here's a guy oh, right. who's like black on one side, white on another, and then another guy who's white on one side, black on another. He can look at them and say, there's really no difference between you two, but he automatically goes with the guy who's like, I am the authority pursuing that other guy. Ah, yeah. well, you are hey. my friend then. I get that. <laughs> right. You know, yeah, let me pour you a drink. <laughs> we come yeah. across any hippies, by the way. Can you do something about them too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, they're not authority when they're not like us. We're like authority, right? Huh? Right. Am I right? Fellow authoritarian. <laughs> Um, we've mentioned a few times before kind of uh, outmoded technology or a technology that gets changed by description mm-hmm. to go into the show. And Kirk actually says to Lincoln that they have taped music 
yeah. the music is taped. And, and yeah. I thought, oh, how quaint. It's sort of like uh, how we refer to the DVR as taping a show, even though sure. there's no tape involved. That must be it. Dude, I've been doing... I, I started I, I went to my first digital editing suite in 1998 for audio 90 mm-hmm. no 96 mm-hmm. the last time I remember cutting tape was probably 97 mm-hmm. and I've done a daily podcast for over eight years as we we're recording this and I still say I gotta go tape yeah I mean it's just, it's it's, yeah. it's ingrained in what we do so you, you'll be right in line in another 300 years. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm keeping that alive. Yes. Yeah, yes. please do. Um, at, now, I, I mentioned earlier that there was that cut scene uh, mm-hmm. from the conference room. And th- there is sort of a little bit of confusion that gets built in here because Lincoln knows he's in space. He knows that he's in a starship, but he doesn't know what a transporter is or what taped music is. Right, uh, And I think had we had that missing scene, even though it's just a dialogue heavy kind of sit and talk or stand and talk kind of thing, it, it might have let on a little more about that. Is he or isn't he? Who is he? Where did he come from? And why does he know certain things but not know other things? That just would have beaten the crap out of it, though, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I know I joked earlier about the philosophy of gnome. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I mean, he actually he knows something about Vulcan and mm-hmm. there's no mm-hmm. way that Lincoln should know anything about Vulcan. So, I mean, there's I, I'm fine with the level of confusion that he's got, that he's reading everybody's brainwaves to an extent. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of hip to that. I, I think it's played a little better when we get to green when he says, like, well, I don't know how I got here, but I am. And, yeah. You, you know, I, I think that's it puts a little more fine of a point on it but am he am he really we'll, <laughs> am he? we'll discuss that later i assume we will. yeah okay all right hey um, uh, can we talk about what a self-centered uh jerk kirk is can we yeah and not just for all the usual reasons so yeah, he's okay. walking around for like hours right like a puppy dog after abraham lincoln abraham lincoln who was the 16th president of the united states now right. when kirk grows up there's no more united states Right. And let me see if I'm doing my math properly. There were 15 presidents before Lincoln. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yes, he kept the union together, but it's a union that is no longer together when Kirk is born, right. <laughs> alone as Kirk goes on. But I digress. Uh, he's not the first anything. Now, I'm not saying Lincoln's not a you know great historical figure, right? But then right, right. Spock meets the Vulcan, right? Spock yeah. meets Surak. Before Surak... They were just a bunch of guys hitting each other with clubs, apparently. They, you know, you like that guy's wife? Take her. If you can, you know, you like that guy's property? Go for it. I mean, they were they were, they were, were like us, basically, before <laughs> right. Surak, right? And then Surak comes along, and then Spock gets to meet the guy, and Kirk's like, I don't have time for this crap anymore, you know? And yeah. it gives him, like, <laughs> maybe 20 seconds, maybe right. 20 seconds to be in awe of the guy who for all intents and purposes, started his civilization after like, you know, two hours of resurrecting the Abraham Lincoln fan club on board the Enterprise. <laughs> right, right. It just struck me as just, it, yeah. it, it annoyed me in a way that yeah. maybe, maybe a little excessively. I, you no, know, I, as I, I'm I, saying it out loud, I think maybe I got a little <laughs> hung up on that. No, I'm right there with you because I, I kind of wanted more of Surak because I, I was so fascinated with um how difficult he must have been to follow, <laughs> you know? I mean, the, the exchange that he has with Spock when Spock sees him for the first time and has what to us 
it is not even a faint glimmer of an emotion. Right. But Surak calls him out on it. Right. And, and Spock, uh, apologize. Oh, please, please forgive me. Oh, let us speak no further of it. And, and just uh, the amount of repression, it just says so much about Balkans. Yes, it does. <laughs> and, it does and I really enjoyed that. Um, Spock, but yeah. you embarrassed yourself. I'm sorry. You're doing it again. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, just, don't even, just don't even talk about it. Yeah. I just I can't yeah. even talk about it anymore. I also am a huge fan of his philosophy, by the way. Seriously, his fa- his philosophy of, you know, peace over war. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing though, he was like that 20th guy that they sent, right? Cuz when yeah, he's telling cause... the story about so so you know, we used to have fights on Vulcan and and what we did was we sent an emissary of peace and they killed him. So, you know, <laughs> so then we sent, we, more. So we sent more and they yeah. killed them too. But eventually, yeah. They ran out of stuff to kill people with, or they just got <laughs> bored with it, or maybe they were tired, and they were like, seriously, you guys aren't going to stop, are you? Fine. And I, that I've... man was Surak. <laughs> right. Lucky him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I found that story to be just as humorous. It's a good, it's a good <laughs> I story. I mean, I, yeah. I, I get what, I mean, and, and I, I feel certain we will actually get into some of that philosophy in a bit as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I love that he's obvi- he obviously wasn't the first one over the wall. Oh, no. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, because he, he would not be there to tell the tale. Um, it, it, there's a, a technical thing that I wanted to point out. Did you see that terrible insert shot of Lincoln recycled from a later shot right before Surak screams? Uh, there were actually a couple of those. Normally, yeah. I, I noticed them. They pushed in really hard on the optical printer this time. We talked yeah. about this, I guess, a couple of weeks ago where you were like, oh, that's a bad that's a bad right. op- optical printer shot. And I was kind of like, right. eh, who cares? But um, these are terrible. Yeah, there was a terrible one of Surak on yes. the uh, optical push, and then the the insert of the slowed down Lincoln. Very, very strange. It's over a dialogue between Kirk and Spock, and you just have to go, well, what happened to that shot of Kirk and Spock that was so bad you couldn't just stay on it? Um, you know? eh, it could have been a boom mic. Although, yeah, why not actually like just pull in closer on which everyone was speaking then? Yeah, yeah, because apparently they don't mind pushing in. Yeah, no, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. yeah. Although yeah, yeah. it may it may have been a writer on uh, Shatner's contract that he never looked grainy. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I have that in my contract too. Klingons, we learned about a new uh, uh, superpower they have. They are excellent voice mimics. Well, just Kalis. Well, <laughs> we don't know. He may be the Frank Gorshin of Klingon. Right. Of Klingons, rather. Kalis the Great. Who is also awesome at voice mimicry and fun at parties. Kalis the Unforgettable. Kalis the Unforgettable Mimic. (laughs) (laughs) Not so great with the acting on that. And and I don't mean the actor playing Kalis, but I mean Kalis the actor actually being convincing. Like he could get the voice, but then he didn't really sell it. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Well, he wasn't wasn't trying to. Well, yeah, okay. Yes. I'm with you. On he, that, was, I he was like, okay, okay, Kalis, play nonchalant. Yeah, no, you see, I think, I think actually, though, that whole thing was sort of ill-conceived. Team Evil was just, mm-hmm. just poorly conceived. There's no way, there's no way a Klingon is going to take orders from a human. No, to start. No. Yeah, but additionally, you get the most ruthless Klingon and the most ruthless human together. I, I mean, I guess it's a bit like Germany and Japan in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. That was also ill-conceived because had things gone the way that they planned, eventually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, when there's nobody else to kill, they're going to start killing each other. I just find it hard to believe that Kalis and and Green would have actually gone two minutes before like one of them stuck a knife in the other one. Yeah, and then said, "Okay, so the rest of you got the message, right?" 
Right. Well, you, I mean, but Genghis that, Khan, just just quiet down, okay? <laughs> right. But that that comes back to the whole thing about them being the the mental projections. No. You know, uh, so that well, if the Excalibians are controlling that much, then they're controlling. But yeah, no, oh. I, I agree with you. It, it's it, it's not a great uh, league of supervillains in that respect. Well, it's a great league of supervillains. The only problem is, I think super supervillains work alone. Yeah. 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 Um, but speaking of these villains, I mean, it, it, well, not just the villains, but uh, what's cool about this episode is you have introduction to a lot of figures that we take for granted later in Star Trek. And I thought that was really cool, most notably Serac and Kales. Uh But even Colonel Green will show up later. I kid you not, Ken. So wait for that day many, many years from now as we do more Mission Log. You know what would have been amazing? If Kirk's hero had been a cartoon mouse, or a clown, or a star of adult films, that would have seriously changed this episode. So I'm not going to say right now whether I like this episode or whether I don't. I will say there is one kind of logic problem that has stymied me as we watched in preparation for this show. Hey, call Sirak. Whose projections were these? And and I I I guess I mean Team Evil in particular. Or, yeah. Is there an actual member of Team Evil there? Right. It, it seems unlikely that there is, since Scotty says they're all figures from history, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that means I mean either either they're pulling people from other times as well as space, or mm-hmm. these are all projections from the Enterprise or from the crew members of the Enterprise, right? Right. That means the trickery exhibited by Team Evil is just a projection from the minds of Kirk and Spock. Yeah. So you have just like Lincoln and Surak are, right? Yep. And that means that Kirk and Spock have no clear concept of the selfish motive. (laughs) (laughs) They've got evil being evil for evil's sake, right? A real Colonel Green would absolutely have worked the deal that he tried to work with Kirk in a heartbeat because he doesn't want to be stuck on that planet with only those four people. Mm -hmm. Especially... And this is confusing because Khan fought his genetics wars in the um, or his eugenics wars in the 1990s. And we know that from past episodes of of Star Trek. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Green was 21st century. Well, uh, we've kind of been given the impression that once they beat Khan, they beat all the warlords and that was over. Apparently, we're in for a little bit more hurt, which is kind of too bad. But a real Colonel Green, even as even as terrible as he was, would have worked that deal with Kirk. He would have screwed Kirk the second he got, you know, to the Enterprise. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead, though, they are cardboard cutouts of bad guys. He's not even interested in getting off this planet. He's just interested in fighting them. Yeah. So the question that we're left with is whose cardboard cutouts are these? <laughs> well, okay, here's I think we're going to come back to the, the evil discussion probably a little bit later. But to answer the question at hand here or to attempt the, the question at hand, whose cardboard cutouts are these? Yeah. I kind of had to sit there and do some mental gymnastics myself and say that these are definitely projections. The only two real people there, uh, naturally occurring people, are Kirk and Spock. And I have to assume that that this is a combination of that deep scan that the Excalbians did on the Enterprise very, very early in the show. And they're looking at records going, okay, well, Genghis Khan, that one sounds good. And uh, Colonel Green, sure, that one sounds good too. But then... <laughs> Should they take Colonel Mustard? No. <laughs> right. Only useless. in the parlor. Yes, Only exactly. in the parlor. Um, 
and then filling in the sort of personality traits based on possibly Kirk, possibly Spock, maybe even some other crewmen that that we're not seeing but may have gotten a mental probe from the Excalbians. I, I think this is just a combination. What's interesting to me is that it does play out that way, though, that Colonel Green and Kirk talk very early on, and it's as Kirk is saying, well, wait a minute, your tactic was to attack during a negotiation. Mm. And sure enough, that's what happens. So I kind of felt like, oh, okay, well, this is Kirk sort of driving the narrative subconsciously, you know? Yeah, okay, the only problem I have with what you're saying, I mean, I like the idea Mm -hmm. of an alien race trying to figure out the whole concept of good and evil. Mm -hmm. I I mean, that's actually kind of a fun thing to play with, right? Mm -hmm. But if all of this is based on a scan of the people on the Enterprise and and presumably the Enterprise um, itself, right? which, of course, has, you know, all human knowledge stored All in its computer knowledge. banks. Yep. Good one. As far as the Federation is concerned, as far as the Vulcans are concerned, as far as the humans are concerned, good one. So, I mean, why is this alien saying, okay, so they, you know, they conquered war, they, 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 they made peace with other races, they, they, they've got this whole Federation, for crying out loud, a Federation of planets, which is a <laughs> lot. I'm still not convinced good's the way to go, though. So what am I going to do? Well, but I mean, if they were looking at the records, they still see like, oh, okay, well, they they still fight Klingons, they still fight Romulans. Um, well, not every, if they can help it. Eh, not if they can help it. Sure. They've actually drawn lines in space, which is tough to do. <laughs> yes, yes. That they can't cross. And, uh, you know, the other guys actually make sure they don't cross the lines in space. Equally difficult to do. Yeah. Um, and then they fight. Yeah. 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 It's also interesting that, I mean, that Green had no problem being called evil. Right. And right. Kalis had no problem being called evil. Well, but again. And what's it, her name? Had no problem being called evil. Yeah, well, she had no say in it, <laughs> clearly. In she either had she no say, Khan. period. I know, Genghis Khan. And by the way, what a, what a cream puff Genghis Khan turns out to be, huh? Yeah, Again, listening to, and does he speak English? That's the other, see, uh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or, or basic is it universal basic just like in the star <laughs> yes. wars role-playing game standard okay, yes. okay. good standard yeah. they've all got babel fish it's cool yeah um well that kind of goes back to the thing that whatever is happening there is sort of interpreted through the minds of kirk and spock you know they it, we're just saying right from the get-go well these people consider themselves good mm-hmm. let's put themselves put them against what they would consider to be evil and we'll see how it plays out and then whatever these other you know avatars these avatars of evil do that's really just going to be based on their interpretation of it which i thought was very interesting because um, from a scientific point of view, I, I like the idea of how memories are not very good and they are very incomplete. You know, you mentioned that it was interesting to you that Kirk would so idolize Lincoln mm-hmm. you, uh, of all people to pick because here he is, you know, 400 years removed from Lincoln. It would be like you idolizing, well, you may very well idolize Shakespeare's works. Mm-hmm. But you may not really have a grasp of Shakespeare the person right? because you kind of can't. You know, we're just too far removed. Um, Don't so that tell was, me I can't, mister. <laughs> well, I know you have the, you know, the posters on the wall. And, exactly. You know. I can tell you how he walked. I can tell you how he talked. Exactly. Of course, I can't. But I guess, you know, if I go to this planet, I'll be able to. 
<laughs> but the thing that was interesting to me is uh, the way that memory works is that it's not a videotape. When we recall the memory, we're not just hitting rewind and play and, and seeing that thing again in our mind's eye. We, we construct memory every time we remember something based on what is sort of emotionally expedient, whatever fits with our concept of reality at that time. So pieces of it change, pieces of it will uh, alter based on our moods. Um, so to me, it was okay that things would be so blurry and maybe illogical the way that this would play out. I, I was kind of okay with that. You I, know? I'm okay with it, except for the parts that happen without Kirk and Spock being there, right? Mm -hmm. So Uh, Sherrock goes off to talk things over, right? Right. And we see that, and they watch that on the Enterprise. So this isn't just happening for their benefit. I mean, these are actual pieces. These are actual actors. And I don't mean actors in the sense that, you know, central casting sent them down. I mean, these are actual actors in whatever deal is going on here. The battle Mm -hmm. is being fought by extras, Mm-hmm. That I mean, that suddenly take leading roles, but they don't exist. And they're still, we assume, all being made up from the minds of the people on the Enterprise, uh, primarily Kirk and Spock. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I'm okay with that because I, I, I kind of, <laughs> I, I like the idea that whatever the Excalbians created, mm-hmm. hey, hey wait, I tell you what, why don't we even call it a manufactured intelligence at that point? Sure. Based on the information that they gleaned from the enterprise and its crew members. Okay. So, so then in that case, you may not even call it free will, but they do have a piece of their programming that would allow them to carry out this stuff independent of Kirk and Spock actually being there sort of driving the action on their own. Hmm. It's an interesting idea. I don't know if I would would call them manufactured intelligence though. I might go and I joked uh, during the recap about, um, Kirk and Spock rolling near critical hits on everything, but in in mm-hmm. in role playing game um, parlance or in video game parlance, they might actually be NPCs or non player characters. So mm-hmm. they have certain parameters that they're going to go through, which is kind of an interesting idea. I mean, so then you've got hmm, so you've got the Excalbians basically taking the you know the the best that good has to offer and the best that evil has to offer, and then just you know putting them together and letting them play it out mm-hmm. what, without any sort of like thought <laughs> literally without any thought again it's it's cardboard cutout theater yeah yeah well i mean do, do you think that this it, at the end of the day is the excalbian experiment legit no <laughs> okay not even close i mean yeah. for for a couple of reasons i mean first of all there's the whole made up based on what thing uh yeah. that we've sort of beaten into the ground now but i mean second the excalbian is not willing to learn he wants to know Mm-hmm. But he doesn't want to learn. I mean, so he's coming to you saying or coming to, you know, Kirk and Spock saying, let me tell you how to tell me. <laughs> right. You're yeah. you're teaching me French all wrong or, right. you know, whatever. And and while we can't agree that there are better ways and worse ways for some people to learn, um, you kind of have to have a lesson first before you find out whether or not the way that you're being taught is 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 right or wrong right it seems to me and 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 he's not doing that he's not giving them a chance to okay so so talk to me about this good and evil thing it's just like oh no you know you know what you know what always works we put people in a place where they're gonna die (laughs) and if they don't then they were right it turns out yeah um we should hook them up with the viands from the empath 
That would yeah, be great. That might be kind of, well, just because it would be great to see something happen to the violence. But, um, <laughs> even when it's done, though, he seems to think that he's learned. But he actually, the only thing that he's learned, the only thing that he thinks that he knows um, isn't necessarily universally applicable. Mm-hmm. Um, the Excalibur says uh, that Kirk and the others have failed to demonstrate to it the differences between their opposing philosophies, except that evil retreats when confronted by force. Mm. Uh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but not always. <laughs> right. Now, I will say it's an interesting take on bullying. Eric could be. I mean, had Colonel Green been stopped, you know, on the playground, maybe mm. he would not have become the despotic leader that he became. Uh, then again, uh, we can't really tell kids, you know, hit him back. Or, you know, better still, if somebody threatens you, you go ahead and hit them first. Yeah. You know, he brings a knife, you bring a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. I mean, this is actually what the Excalibur seems to have taken away from this whole thing. And and he's disappointed that he didn't really gain more knowledge or gain more of an understanding, but not so disappointed that he's still he's not going to talk about it. He's like, wow, that sucked. (laughs) You guys didn't teach me anything. And they're like, well, you didn't really give us a chance. And he's like, I'm a rock again. Right. Bye. Well, I, but that's it. Okay, so the, the Excalibur is very concerned about good versus evil, at least as it plays out in their little arena there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Not to be confused with arena, which is also pitting right. uh, Federation against the monster and fight to the death. Um, it's like a lot of other advanced races we've seen in Star Trek where their perception of humanity is, you know, off a little bit, or, or maybe they're just fixated on the wrong thing, and I find that very amusing. Mm-hmm. Um it seems like the Excalibur already had some sense of good and evil by making the team choices it did, at least based on our records. Um, and maybe it's just all perspective, that that bad point of view. But then did it occur to the Excalibur and just sit down and talk a little about good and evil at first? Yeah. Uh, you know, it might have made for a very interesting philosophical discussion. Um, you know, maybe they could argue the uh, theodicies. Um Something like that might have made, you know, for less action. But, well, it would have um, been much, much less action. Yeah. But it would have been a better, yeah, it would have been a better, I don't know. Because it seems like we just got that little hint at the very end of Kirk saying, well, you set the rules, so too bad. Yeah, <laughs> you know? although, although we sort of, again, had that whole thing. It's kind of like all the aliens in the third season who have said, uh, we didn't kill them. They died because they couldn't take what we were doing. <laughs> right. The Excalibur. Right. And so, so Kirk's like, hey, you know, you set up this fight thing that we had to do, and, and now you're upset that you didn't learn anything. Yeah. And the Excalibur's like, hey, I just set up the fight. I didn't say you had to, even though yeah. he actually did. Yeah. yeah <laughs> he actually totally. did say, if you don't fight, uh, then, then the Enterprise will die, and so will you. Right. But, you know, then afterwards he's like, hey, you had free will. I guess, yeah. I guess really what they could have done was spent the whole time arguing with the ref instead of playing the game. Right. And maybe that's what they should have done. I mean, maybe they should have sat with the Excalibur and gone, no, seriously, man, just think about it for a minute. <laughs> Is what you're doing right now, does it feel good? If right. it doesn't, <laughs> then you're being evil. And that's not good, is it? You know, we have two words for it because they're different. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They, they could have saved themselves a lot of time and a lot of running around. And well, I don't know. Things. I mean, he they had four hours. Because that yeah. was the other thing. They were put on the clock. I don't know that I would be able to explain to what, for all intents and purposes, is a is a highly functioning five-year-old the difference between good and evil, which is kind of like what you've got with the Excalibur, right? Yeah. You only got four hours. Yeah, go ahead and put on a show for him. Yeah. And maybe you'll get out of it. And if you do, 
then you can talk to him about good and evil, provided he doesn't turn into a rock. Here's what I want to know. Where is Excalbia? Because it's not there. He says that, you know, countless people from his world are watching. I thought they were watching I, on, on well, that world. I don't believe I, so. I, be, I think I think it's like a studio. He says that they've set up an arena. He says that they've set up a place for them to play. But I thought that was just that Earth-like spot on their planet. I got the impression that this was someplace else. I got the impression that he was in, inhabiting that rock to to just be the game master. That they were sort of like the Super Bowl. I got the impression that they were in like some other place entirely. Oh, no. no it, see, I, I, I think the planet is Excalbia. And then mm. they, they all, all those other rock creatures that are living in its molten lava uh, surface are elsewhere on that planet. And they just, it, they are so good at sort of reconstructing and reconfiguring molecules and chemistry that then they can do things like set aside a little patch of their planet that is habitable to earth creatures. Mm. And then, and then it goes back. You know, at the end of the episode, it goes back to its normal look because if you're a rock, you're like, "Hey, this is great! I got, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got molten rock everywhere. I can swim in this." See, I believe that you could actually make a case for that not being the planet, but mm. whatever. I don't care either okay. way; it doesn't okay. matter. I guess. Well, I guess the one reason it does matter if you're living in a you know poisonous lava-filled planet. What mm. do you care about good and evil? Yeah, right. I mean, you, you've actually got it going on. As you say, if you're a rock who likes swimming around in lava and doesn't have to breathe, yeah, you have found the way to eat, my friend. You are where you need to be. So what do you care about good and evil? That's true. That's true. But I, I still I have to assume that the Excalbians have had disagreements with each other. Like, <laughs> hey, you're, you're in my pool of lava. They haven't even figured out how to build a building yet, dude. Seriously? Yeah, or maybe that's part of maybe that's part of the paradise. I mean, maybe they don't have to build buildings, but then again, why do you care about good and evil? I think they're elsewhere. I do, and and does not matter. It It does not matter at all. Yeah, but I'm Um, right. I'm sure that we'll hear (laughs) about it. Um, Probably so. Probably so. Hey, uh, I want to talk about the Uhura Lincoln Exchange. Mm her line uh in our century we've learned not to fear words this is so often sort of uh held up as a great shining moment of star trek mm-hmm. um and i think it's absolutely great in sentiment and, and at the same time i do wonder well someone in the 23rd century still could take offense yeah you know? it's on them isn't it i guess so um, <laughs> you know, they, they, I mean, there are words that we don't use because they are inappropriate. I, I like to think that we can look at language objectively as a series of sounds meant to communicate. They don't have like an inherent value or an inherent meaning. Um, but I, I just wonder in the 23rd century, we still, you know, will there still be things that offend or at the very least are inappropriate? Um, and I guess, you know, Lincoln's reply to that, the, the foolishness of my century had me apologizing where no offense was given. Well, at least he understood that it could have been offensive. And hey, better safe than sorry. You, you know, um, I guess. Yeah, I'm a, I'm honestly I'm I'm a have you seen Lenny? Yeah, a long time ago. Uh, uh, I, I do remember very well Dustin Hoffman, and Valerie Perrine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I and I believe this was actually part of Lenny Bruce's act as well. And I can't do it. And the reason I can't do it is because we are not where Lenny Bruce was 50 years ago as we record this. 
Mm-hmm. But he's basically killing a room, and then he starts throwing out all of these racial epithets mm-hmm. at people who are of the race that would be an epithet. Yeah. And he's about to have his head handed to him. And he says, well, because here's the deal. I'm, and then he uses his own racial epithet. Yeah. And his whole point is, I'm, you know what? I'm going to use that word about me that other people would use to hurt me into the ground. And I'm going to use the one about you too. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the only reason this word has power to hurt us is because we let it. Some idiot comes in and wants to insult me. And so he calls me something that he thinks is going to insult me. Mm-hmm. Well, he hasn't thrown a rock at me. It's, I mean, it's, it's so stupid, but sticks and stones may break my bones, mm-hmm. but words will mm-hmm. never hurt me. Call me that word because you're just dumb and mean yeah. and you're just doing it to be dumb and mean and I can be affected by that or I cannot. And, and, and I really, this has always been one of my favorite ideas and, and it has slowly been beaten out of me. <laughs> over a very long time <laughs> the idea that we're going to get past it I, yeah. I i would love to think that we were going to get past it the only problem is i would probably end up dying trying to get us past it yeah because you know you can't the only way to get people over being offended by something because that really is it's just an offensive idea right yeah is to desensitize people to it and that's going to get me beaten with a stick right if right. i did it and so i'm i'm actually i'm in love with what she said and I would like to think that we could all get over ourselves enough to get to that place. But the fact that you say, well, there might still be people who are offended. Okay, so then I got to watch my P's and Q's. And then if I keep cordoning off sections of speech that I can't use because I'm afraid that somebody's going to be offended, that's going to give some horrible person <laughs> yeah, right. a weapon. Right. If I say, oh, I, I can't say that because that might upset this other person, then somebody else is going to go, oh, I'm going to say that because that's going to upset that person. Sure, no, I mean? of course. It, it gives the other person power. I, I right. understand. I mean, and, and that's. But I mean, we give them power then, too, if we say, yeah. oh, don't say that because that might bother that person. Yeah. I mean, we do it and we do it all the time on this show. I mean, we we have had discussions on this show about whether or not we're going to curse. Right. And we don't. And the reason we don't is because there are people listening right now who listen with their kids and they would be offended if their kids heard the seven deadlies that you can't say on television, which yeah. are, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, so I, we're not there and I don't, I, I guess maybe we're never going to get there. We'll have transporters before we have people walking around saying the F word in polite conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I, what I was posing by, by pulling that out is that I do love the sentiment. Like it is great. I, I just, I wonder how, like of, of all the fascinating things that are science fiction concepts in Star Trek, <laughs> I feel like this may be one of the most fantastical. Yeah. Even though it is a great ideal to aspire to. Yeah. Um, you, well, you know what the answer is, right? What? Be the change you want to be, John. Oh, that's beautiful. You do that, okay? You start saying everything that leaves the mind. <laughs> and I'll hold your coat when you get in a fight. Hey, um, a, a great little exploration of Ittick in this episode mm-hmm. um, but what I thought was funny about it though so uh, you know Spock and, and the Vulcans are delighted they actually use the word delighted 
to be who they are. <laughs> and, and, and which, uh, yeah, okay, a little, a little emotional there. Um, and, and Spock calls it the combination of a number of things to make existence worthwhile, uh, except for the combination, including things like emotions and a healthy relationship with your father. Uh, but they go a little deeper when you bring in Surak, um, where he basically lays it out that Idik is the result of two disparate ideas coming together. He says, I am pleased to see we have differences when he meets Kirk. Let us together become greater than the sum of both of us. And I kept thinking, yeah, ask Spock how that works out when like a Vulcan and a human come together. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well. Because for Spock, this has been a very difficult road to hoe. That's true. At the same yeah. time, it makes sense that um, Surak would be cool with it because, again, 21st guy over the wall. Yeah, right. right. When he right. got there or when, you know, whoever he's extolling the virtues of. I mean, there were there were warring factions on Vulcan. So, I mean, Vulcan automatically became better when they stopped fighting. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you would mm-hmm. you could certainly see him thinking that. But he's been dead for centuries. Yeah. So, so, I, just, you know. I, I feel like, you know, had uh, let, let's say you could add another member to the team here. And let's say that Sarek then becomes part of Spock's father. Why do we feel that like Surak and Sarek would get along great? They'd have a lot to talk about and they'd just be logic it up all the time. And Spock would feel even more left out <laughs> than he does now by meeting Surak. Yeah, quite you know? possible. Oh, yeah. oh, poor Spock. See? Poor yeah. Spock and his daddy issues too. I was actually surprised to find out that, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised to find this out, but that Surak is considered the father of Vulcan society. And uh, Spock actually says somewhere in here, and, you know, and father is a very important thing uh, yeah. to the Vulcan society. Okay, well, that's not a surprise at all because, hello, daddy issues central. Right. Um, you know, Spock's on line three, four, five, and seven. <laughs> He's tying up all the lines. Could somebody please take care of this? <laughs> right. um, T'Pau. T'Pau mm. oversees uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the fight around Pond Far in a mock time. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I just remembered a character, a situation the character was in, and the name of an episode. So back off. Good job. Good Thank job. you very much. Yeah. Um, that it's a, that it's such a patriarchal society, um, and yet you have Tafau uh, overseeing, you know, one of the biggest things. I mean, I thought I would have thought that Vulcan could have been fairly. Just, you know, the cream would rise. And if that cream, you know, was male, fine. If that cream was female, fine. But it it actually starts to sound like it's much more of a patriarchal society than we might have been given to understand. uh, Spock's daddy issues aside. Well, and they did such a good job at getting rid of violence, except in their marriage rituals, which they still carry out in a fight to the death. Well, that's 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 just mass psychosis. They can't help that. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting to ponder who might have appeared had the Excalbians can me. I think it might have been Colossus, or maybe Skynet. You know, the good guys. So just like the Excalbian, we have pulled apart this episode and taken it to the test to see what works, what doesn't work and uh, how it all comes together in the end. So, Ken, we always like to ask ourselves, does an episode of Star Trek hold up uh, after all these many decades since it first air, aired? Uh, what about it here? What about the Savage Curtain? Does this hold up, Ken? Um, I want to say yes. 
And the problem that I'm having is the same problem that I've had with a lot of the season three episodes that I want to say yes about. I don't know if it holds up or if it holds up for season three. Mm-hmm. We've had some really bad episodes this season. Um, I will say, and maybe I'm doing too much Great Bird of the Galaxy kind of thing, but when Gene Roddenberry writes a story, I feel like there's a lot there to grapple with. I feel like there's a lot there to play with. Uh, The guy invented Star Trek, right? Mm -hmm. But he's not like the geek fan that came along to play in Star Trek. Right. He invented Star Trek with, you know, sort of archetypes in mind with, 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 with this idea that we're going to get to a better place as a society. So rather than getting, you know, stuck on, well, the warp drive is overheating, but I'll climb in this conduit and I'll fix that yeah, and I'll yeah. do that. He's like, actually, he's actually good and evil. He's like, Hey, guess what? 300 years from now, we're still going to be, you know, grappling possibly with yeah. good and evil, which is a much bigger thing. So, I want to say it holds up. There are logic problems, like, you know, who is cardboard cutout is that? Right. Why is it doing what it's doing? Is there actually an it doing anything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this whole thing actually happening, you know, inside Kirk's head? I mean, there, 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 there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work logically, but I, I feel like this episode works pretty well, with a couple of exceptions. Um, the female scientist whose name I thought I would remember, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, because she barely exists on the screen and Genghis Khan, they don't work yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at yeah. all. But I do love, um, I love Surak. I love meeting Surak. Yeah. Um, the guy who played Lincoln is no Daniel Day Lewis, but it'll do. <laughs> what about you? Um, yeah, I, I sadly have to say no. I really say no, it doesn't hold up. But, but here's the thing, even though I feel like the episode doesn't really hold up, just like I said with The Way to Eden, I still like it. I, I really do, because it's kind of cool. You know, it, it's too bad about the cheesy set and the cheesy rock costume, although I, I give them points for going out of their way to try to make something very alien. Again, like the Horda. Mm-hmm. You know, so welcome back to Janos for that. Um, and I really enjoy the idea of an alien messing with human psychology to try to understand or challenge them, because, of course, what Star Trek does is it holds that up as a mirror to ourselves. Um, the pacing is mostly OK. Uh, there are a few fight scenes where the bad guys kind of have the upper hand and they just run away. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so that's unfortunate. Um, well, again, though, if the whole thing is built from Kirk's head, then Kirk's going to win. Uh, right, right. There you go. So this is really not a legitimate test uh, after all in that case. No. Um, so it's one of those where I feel like, yeah, I agree with you. This is a Gene Roddenberry version of Star Trek. I only wish that – I don't know if he originally wrote the story and then kind of disappeared and then this got made or if he came back to work on it. But I feel like it's another one of those that needed an extra set of hands. It needed maybe a little DC Fontana or or somebody else to kind of pull it all together. So it's not quite there. I really – the first time I watched this episode – well – First time now watching this episode, not the first time I had ever seen it, mm-hmm. but in preparation for um, for our show, I, I kind of like rolled my eyes. I, yeah, I remember this one with Lincoln and The Rock and blah, blah, blah. But then watching it three or four times, I really got into it again. And I really felt like, okay, there are good conversations here. There are All good right. characters here. And I liked Surak. But at the end of the day, it doesn't hold up for me. And what, so what I, is it What is it that's not working? Because you started off with 
this episode does not work for me, and then did three minutes on what you like about it. Well, I said the things I didn't like about it as well. I think the production value really hurts the story. Hmm. I mean, it's unfortunate. I mean, the, the reality is that, okay, it's a show that was made nearly 50 years ago, yeah. and we try to be careful about you know, letting that be the sole arbiter of whether or not a show holds up. Um, but I think this is one of those times where the story gets hurt by the production value, um, even mm. though there are moments that have very good production value. But I also feel like the the script, the logic of the script, things like that could have been tightened up. It could have used another set of hands. And I will say, continue to our next assignment is my absolute least favorite line in all of Star Trek endings. We've seen it a few times. We'll see it again. And for some reason, it just makes me pull my hair out. Huh. I feel like it's just a weak ending. But um, like, oh, well, we, we didn't know what else to say, but we got to say something. <laughs> all right. All right. So, yeah. But, but yeah, you know, again, all that, like I said, <laughs> I think it doesn't hold up. But I like it. So, I've, I've, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to grapple with. But let's grapple with the messages, the morals and meanings. What, what did you pull out of this, Ken? Oh, I didn't get one. I mean, yeah. I mean, there there were a few different things, but I mean, there was a lot of mm-hmm. stuff that could be picked over. It, it more felt like, not like a greatest hits of, well, here's how we could be, here's how we should be, let's do all these things. But I mean, it, it was full of ideas that you expect somebody who is trying to make the future different or make the future better, you know, it was full mm-hmm. of a lot of those ideas. I mean, like the whole thing we talked about, about yeah, 300 years from now, nobody's going to care what you call me. I'm not going to care what you call me because we're kind of over that now. Yeah. Um, is that a moral? Sure. But I mean, it's like a little one. It's not like the whole, you know, the whole episode is not based on one thing. Uh, it's, it's, it, this will end up being my number one episode, Corbomite Maneuver. I mean, Corbomite Maneuver is built on a couple of ideas, and there are really two ideas, and you, and, you, and you tunnel through, and you tunnel through, and you tunnel through, and you finally come to this, like, moral center of the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. This is not that. But, I mean, yeah. there, there are things all throughout, sort of like, oh, yeah, look, it's like that Lenny Bruce line. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Let's go on to something else. I mean, we've got not quite a salad bar of stuff, but, I mean, there are a few different things that you can pull out. Um, but is there one message? I don't think so. It, it struck me as a, a fun and an interesting and an engaging uh, sort of rumination on a few different ideas. Yeah. And, and for that, I mean, again, I'll, I'll give the worst episode of Star Trek props if it, if it makes me or even encourages me to think about those things. Um, sure. But, of course, then it's not the worst episode of Star Trek. The worst episode of Star Trek is uh, Cat's Paw. <laughs> <laughs> or Miri. I'm not sure which. I'm uh, still no, wait, wait, no, Probably no, Cat's Paw. No children shall lead? Children shall lead gave me stuff to think about. As I believe, so shall I do, John. See, I, I I struggled with the idea of is there a central message? I don't know. Maybe the unintentional message. Sometimes you have to fight. Even as awful yeah. as that may be, sometimes an appeal to peace and logic simply won't work. So then you get back to this whole thing. Well, can you only achieve peace if you are prepared for war? Because sometime all those overtures to peace won't work. Um, it, it's unfortunate. But then I sort of stop myself and, and, and I ask myself, is that message Kirk's fault? Because he imagined the enemies who could not be reasoned with. Well, no, but go the other way, though. I mean, the whole thing is an extension of the guy who wrote the story, right? We've had two or mm-hmm. three different treatments of of fighting versus not fighting from Gene Roddenberry. Some yeah. of them are 
not fighting is as simple as not fighting. That's true if both sides are on that same page, right? And we're done fighting. We're done fighting now. We don't necessarily yeah. agree, but we're not going to fight anymore. Then there's um, a private little war where there was no choice but to fight. And it yeah. wasn't about destroying. It wasn't even about winning. It was just, we have to keep fighting here so that this doesn't get worse. Right. And now we we do have this third treatment of like, okay, peace, war, good, evil. Yes. I mean, it, it struck me as another examination of that whole uh, fighting versus not fighting thing. Well, they're put in an impossible situation. And, and again, you know, the, the conditions dictated that they had to fight. Mm. So, or, you know, again, or, it, or did they? I mean, yeah, well, you, you do have the yeah, Horda Light, the Excalbia, <laughs> actually saying at the end of it, hey, you know, we just set up the parameters. You did what you did, which I, I disagree. I mean, I, I do think yeah. they were put in a situation where they had to fight, but maybe they didn't have to fight. I mean, maybe it's an examination then of Kirk's, you know, <laughs> like when he says, yeah, we're about peace. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, when this alien actually scans them, he's like, oh, they're about fighting. <laughs> right, so, oh, right. So right. let's see how that goes. So I don't there's, know. A, there's a line that the Excalbian has, um, and that made me ask: are, are the methods and results of good and evil often indistinguishable? And, and I thought that was a fascinating line. That was a fascinating thing to tackle, if not only for the idea that is that Star Trek subverting its own message <laughs> in that way, mm. because we're not presented with an alternative, really. So are we to just sort of assume that's the way it is, or do we go through this mental exercise saying, well, was there another way for them to get in and out of this? You know, you mentioned a private little war where we're not given the alternative. The only answer is that they fight. Right. And it's not necessarily they kill each other, and it's not necessarily that, you know, one destroys the other. But the answer is they fight, and they have to keep fighting. Um, and it's sad, and it's unfortunate. Um but here we are with another episode where we just throw this out there and we say the methods and results, good and evil, are often indistinguishable. And we're not really pointed toward the other direction. Hmm. I thought that was a, a really interesting way to end this. Um, yeah, not, not a message, but definitely a heavy, uh, a heavy point made by the episode or at least presented by the episode for us to kick around. You see, now, if we had another hour, <laughs> because what it reminds me of then is um, is Pastor Casey from um, The Grapes of Wrath. Mm. There is no good. There is no bad. There's just things people do. I would agree with that. Well, I don't know that I would agree with that. But, yeah, when you say that good and evil often, you know, use the same. When the Excalbian says good and evil often use the same um, uh, tactics and get the same results, well, then, yeah. I mean, they're two sides of the same coin or the same side of two coins times being what they are mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> man that was just yet another pop reference oh I, one day we should go back and catalog all these you know what else we should do what's that we should let people know if they want to get in touch with us um how they can do that do you want me to do that or do you want to do it you go right ahead, Ken. All right. Well, if you want to contact us, you can do that on Facebook, Skype, or Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. That email address again, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, Ken, next week, and we will be back next week. All our yesterdays. On to our next assignment! 
<laughs> oh god, that's my least favorite. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at k-i-theory.com. Next week, a race of cork-like creatures hijacks the Enterprise for a combative cup of tea, as they finally stage the age-old battle, of pleasant, versus unpleasant. But not really. and transmission.